It's Tuesday, August 25th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, the one and only Jason Moser. Good to see you. Good to see you. How's everything? It's going all right. We've yeah. got a shakeup in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. We're going to talk about the basket approach to investing, but we're going to start today with Best Buy. Online sales in Best Buy's second quarter grew 240%, <laughs> and profits and revenue in the second quarter were higher than expected. Uh, but once again, online sales year over year up 240%. The numbers just keep getting bigger for these retailers in terms of their online sales growth. Shares at Best Buy are down about 5% today, but Jason, I feel like this is the home electronics and appliances version of what we saw last week with Home Depot and Lowe's, you know, putting up great numbers, uh, the stock selling off the day of the report, in part because, in the case of Best Buy, it's had a pretty amazing run. It's up 70% in the past year. Yeah, and, and I mean, it wasn't all that long ago. Um, I mean, a lot of us, not just at the Fool, but I mean, generally in, in the finance, uh, financial community, the investing community, we're looking at Best Buy as you know, a pretty ideal short candidate, right? Thinking, okay, well, we're now entering this new Amazon world, and how is Best Buy going to survive this? And um, you know, fast forward to today, clearly they have survived it. They've done very well. It's been a good year for the stock. It's been a good past year for the stock. Uh, good year to date. Um, and you know, I think the silver lining for a lot of businesses during this pandemic, it's given them a chance to redefine themselves, maybe to hit the reset button a little bit um, in an effort to prove their mettle in, in what is likely going to be a new world going forward, at least to some extent. And, and to that point, I mean, we saw there was some interesting perspective on the call from CEO Corey Suberry, uh, who said, that you know, she she noted three concepts they believe are going to be permanent structural uh, changes implications from this pandemic. And one, customer shopping behavior will be permanently changed in a way that's even more digital and puts more customers entirely in control of how to shop for what they want and how you know shopping how they want. Um, I, I think that's right. Uh, two, the workforce is going to need to evolve in a way that meets the needs of customers while providing more flexible opportunities. I think that's right. And three, technology is playing an even uh, more crucial role in, in everyone's lives due to the pandemic. Um, and, and that certainly uh, you know, would, would give a company like Best Buy more reason to invest in technology, not only in the back, not only on the, on the back end, but really also on the consumer uh, facing side as well, uh, bringing more of that tech to consumers. And, and then as you noted, I mean, the online, <laughs> the online sales numbers are just phenomenal. I mean, it, it, domestic online revenue grew 240% from a year ago. Um, and interestingly, as a percentage of total domestic revenue, online revenue increased to approximately 53% of total domestic revenue versus 16% a year ago. So, uh, not not that surprising given what we're going through, but it's nice to see that Best Buy is, is not only capitalizing on it, but it seems like they have a really good framework on how to take this business forward. The one thing that surprised me in the report Best Buy saw growth across most of their categories, you know, computing, tablets, home appliances. They didn't see growth in home theater. 
And that surprised me a little bit, considering everything we've talked about over the last few months about people being in their homes, binge watching, you know, the rise of Netflix, Disney Plus, all this sort of thing. It does, however, make me wonder if the next six months for Best Buy are set up in such a way that we are going to see a nice bump in the home theater segment. I think there's a lot of potential for that. I think that, you know, we've gone through these last six months or so with a lot of uncertainty in exactly how things are going to uh, be once we get past, you know, you know, this pandemic, whatever that looks like. And so, I mean, are, are movie theaters going to, are theaters going to come back? If not, what does that look like? How are, how are, you know, studios and how are these businesses distributing their content going forward? I mean, we're seeing Disney, of course, experimenting with throwing stuff out there on Disney plus. Um, and, and so I would imagine part of that is just some uncertainty is exactly how things are going to look, uh, you know, in the next year. And, and then, and then what that ultimately looks like going forward is kind of our new normal. And, and I think it's also probably fair to say that those are bigger ticket items, require a little bit more deliberation, and we've got a holiday season coming up here. So it, it's probably pretty reasonable to think that if people are starting to think about that stuff, they're trying to get you know in their minds exactly what that looks like. Uh, but also thinking, hey, you know, once they get that picture in their mind, the holiday season coming up, I mean, there's going to be a great opportunity to really go in there and, and uh, you know, look for things like that. And, and, and management did note on the call. I mean, they, they see while they've been uh, very good about keeping control on the expense side, SG&A, uh, for example, was was uh, they, ke- they kept a lid on SG&A, which, which uh, enhanced profitability for the quarter. But they are going to spend more on SG&A uh, advertising campaigns, getting back out front and center for the consumer for this holiday season to try to take advantage. I think Best Buy is one of those companies that could be in a great position for this holiday season, assuming that you know we don't see some uh, second wave, quote unquote, or or you know see see more uh, pandemic problems developing. Hopefully, if we can keep things going the way they're going, I think Best Buy is set up for for potentially a really a really nice holiday season. Next Monday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average will be changing 10% of its index. It's the biggest shakeup of Dow components since 2013. Being added are Amgen. Honeywell and Salesforce.com. Exiting stage left are Pfizer, Raytheon, and ExxonMobil. Pour one out for ExxonMobil. <laughs> that has been in the Dow since 1928. Um, you and I were talking a little bit about this this morning. I'm, I, I'm a little confused by, by this combination <laughs> of moves. I think if it had just been as simple as we're putting in Salesforce.com, we're taking out ExxonMobil. That would have made sense to me, um, at, at least on the surface of it. But, you know, you, you did some digging and uh, there's, there's, I think, some pretty compelling reasons behind these moves. Yeah, and it all goes back to one word, and that is Apple. <laughs> um, Apple is, as as we know, a member of the Dow, and the Dow being a price weighted index that has a big impact on how these companies um, contribute to the index. And so this move that that we're seeing today, these these three out and three in, um, this is essentially a rebalancing act. I mean, this this is an effort to diversify the index. Uh, because of the fact that Apple is splitting. And so we know Apple splitting four for one. Ultimately, what that does 
it, it, it's going to, again, because of the price weighting nature of the index, it reduces the weighting of information technology in the index. It reduces Apple's per share basis impact on the index. And so, it, you know, that one split has all sorts of interesting ramifications to the index uh, as a whole. And I mean that—that's ultimately what this boils down to. And and so you're seeing these these one for one kind of companies where uh, Raytheon and Honeywell, yeah, you can draw the parallels there. Um, you know, certainly Amgen and Pfizer, you can draw the parallels there. Exxon and Salesforce, maybe not so much. But like you said, I mean, let's pour one out for Exxon because I I think uh, you know when you look at the numbers, it, it it starts to make a little bit more sense of why these these new companies are coming in and and just looking over the last 10 years, for example, if you look at the comparisons, Pfizer versus Am Amgen over the last 10 years, Amgen's returned 377% versus Pfizer's 142%. Uh, Honeywell has returned 328% versus Raytheon's 46%. Uh, and then ExxonMobil, unfortunately, is in the negative there, down about 30%, while Salesforce has returned close to 660%. So you can see part of this is, you know, there's there's an attractive nature to getting your index a, a bit more forward-looking, a bit more kind of where the puck is going, so to speak. Um, but then also, it's it's interesting to think about the implications just from the actual nominal share prices here. I mean, when you look at the actual share prices of some of these businesses that are going to be coming in, uh, again, going back to that price-weighted nature of the index, I mean, Pfizer is uh, just just about $40 per share. Uh, Amgen, on the other hand, is, is somewhere in the neighborhood of, I mean, it's close to $250 per share. So just that switch alone is going to give the index more exposure to that industry just based on the nominal share price. And, and you see the same dynamic with Honeywell versus Raytheon and with, with Salesforce versus Exxon, although to a lesser degree. Um, but, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's a rebalancing act. I don't know that I would read a whole heck of a lot into it. I'm sure there's some politicking that goes on as far as determining what companies are going to go in there. But, but I think you know this really does all kind of trace back to Apple, uh, interestingly enough. And, and it, it probably is a wise move. I think, it makes, I think it makes the index a bit more representative of the American economy, and it gives um, not only just the American economy, really the global economy, and it also gives uh, you know all of the members a bit more of a say so in the in the in the index. Do you think anyone at Pepsi looks at the Dow Jones Industrial Average, looks at their performance relative to Coca Cola's over the last few years, and just says, "Come on"? I like just sw sw swap us in for Coke. Come on, we're 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 doing better than Coke. I think or or do you think us. you know what? It just doesn't matter. <laughs> no, I think it does matter, and I think you know we talk about skating to where the puck is going. I mean, let's let's let's, let's doff of the cap there to Pepsi because they're the ones making all of the investments in the salty snacks and the foods and diversifying away from just being a beverage company. I mean. Hey, listen. I mean, I moved up here from Georgia. I'm a Coca-Cola guy, but but let's the facts are the facts, right? I mean, maybe it is time for a switch. Maybe it's time for uh, for Pepsi to to take that title and and uh, you know Coca-Cola to take a back seat because certainly it's been the better stock to own over the last several years. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Question from Scott Morrissey. He writes, I'm a proud fool since 2006 and one of the dozens of happy Market Foolery listeners. I really enjoy the market basket approach to investing in businesses riding secular trends. When you start 
a basket and spot a leader in the sector, do you invest more capital in that business at the outset and less with the others? Or do you start with equal weight positions and deploy more later in the individual businesses based on conviction and opportunity? I don't know what I don't know, so I tend to go equal weight. What do you think of that approach? Thanks for everything you do. Uh, thank you, Scott, for listening and for uh, a great question. Um, you, I mean, in the baskets that you've created, Jason, the war on cash basket, the health and wellness basket, unless I'm mistaken, I think you've gone the equal weight route right out of the gate. That is correct. That is correct. And Scott, I like the way you think. You said a lot of good things in there. Um, I like that. I don't know what I don't know. And as investors, I mean, that's really important to that's really important to know that. I mean, I'm saying, I think we've said the word no too many times, but it's really important to know what you don't know. And if you don't know what you don't know, then hey, you're at least saying that you know that you don't know what you don't know. Uh, so that's good. If everybody's thoroughly confused, now we can move forward. Um, I, I so I I. You're right, Chris. I, we start out equal weight, and that's really for two reasons. It's, it's number one, it keeps it simple. And that was part of the idea behind the basket approach is we're going to simplify this. Just, just try not to make this too difficult. And also, you know, while leaders can be obvious in hindsight, they're not always so obvious when you put together a portfolio. Um, and also, it's worth noting that market leaders may not necessarily be your returns leaders either, right? There is a difference. And so, I'll use Visa versus MasterCard, for example. If we just look at the war on cash basket and the four um, components of that basket, which are Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, and Square, well, Visa is the, that's the market leader in, in the payment space in the sense that they're the biggest, they have the most cards out there, uh, you know, the network is, is, is the biggest. I mean, and so when you look at it from that perspective, that's the leader. Yet, over the time of, of the basket's performance, Visa is the worst performer. And when I say the worst performer, I mean, listen, the stock has doubled since the basket was formed. So it's not like it's performing poorly. But when you compare it to the other three, Visa's in fourth place. So, you know, that leader isn't necessarily the returns leader either. And that does make a difference. So the idea behind baskets really is to find. I guess, leaders in the space where we know there's this big opportunity, but then trying to find leaders that fit into different risk categories. And so, with the war on cash, for example, you've got Visa and MasterCard. Those are kind of your stalwarts. And then you've got PayPal, which is, you know, that's that's a company that's maybe sort of that mid-range risk here, although that's really become less risky over time as well. Square being a little bit of a, of a higher risk. Uh, so, you've got leaders in their respective spaces, um, but, but keeping it equal weight, I think, is an easy way just to keep it simple. Um, and then it's also worth noting too that as time goes on, and this is the nice thing about these baskets is you start them out equal weight. As time goes on, things become a little bit more apparent to us as investors. We see certain companies are performing better than others. We become a little bit more convicted on some companies as opposed to others. There's nothing that says you can't start adding more to those winners as time goes on. And and I've I've done that personally. I mean, I invest I've got money in all four of those payments companies and and through the past couple of years, I've added more money to PayPal and Square 
as opposed to really adding to my uh, MasterCard and Visa positions. And, and, you know, part of that is just because I, I felt like I could uh, assess some, some performance there. And, and it, uh, I, I wouldn't, you know, I didn't have any problem taking on a little bit more risk and maybe that overexposure. But, but definitely starting out with that basket, I think uh, equal weight makes the most sense. And, uh, you know, from there, there's nothing says that you can't add to those winners as time goes on. I don't know if we talked about this at the time, but I remember thinking when you set up the war on cash basket a few years ago, looking at those four companies, I remember looking at Square and thinking to myself, ah, there's a ch- <laughs> like not so much like ah, they might go under. It was more like ah, someone might buy them. Like they may, they may not be in the basket in a few years because someone might just snap them up. Um, but, uh, you know, as you said, that's, that's why you, that's one more reason to go the equal weight route. Yeah. And I, and I did consider that as well. I mean, I considered both of those. I mean, there was a greater than 0% chance that square could have been acquired or that it could have gone under. I mean, it, it you know, I mean, it, it was a brand new business. It was losing money hand over fist. Um, so, so there was a bit of a leap of faith involved there. And, and so, yeah, that's you could see those scenarios play out. You look at something like a Visa and MasterCard, yeah, they might not light the world on fire, but I'm 99.9% certain that those businesses are not going under. And so that's, that's really where that risk profile comes into play and, and why those baskets can work so well, because they're just, they're like your little mini, they're like your own little mini fund. And that's a lot of fun to manage your own money like that. Jason Moser, always good talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.